Welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast. Go behind the scenes with today's top filmmakers as they discuss the techniques they bring to the art of motion imaging. This is Ian Stasikevich, a contributing writer for American Cinematographer Magazine. In this episode, Sean Bobbitt, BSC, talks about his work on the film Shame, directed by the British filmmaker Steve McQueen. This is the second collaboration between Bobbitt and McQueen, a very modestly photographed but emotionally intense film about a successful 30-something sex addict living in New York City. For this interview, I spoke with Sean in Dublin via Skype. Shame is the kind of film that seems to rely heavily on visual storytelling, more than just dialogue. And when there is dialogue, it's very lean and expositional, with very intense bursts of emotion. But a lot of the emotion that comes from the performances is largely unspoken. How do you convey that emotion? There seems to be, and these days, the convention is to put way too many words into the film, um, as if the actors themselves aren't trusted to be able to, um, to, to show what they're feeling or thinking and have to say it. Um, Steve McQueen comes from the world of art, uh, where everything is unsaid. It's, um, everything is representational. Everything is, um, you know, has, uh, comes from the visual itself as opposed to the written. And I think that that is sort of the, um, the basis of all his films, not just um, you know Hunger and Shame, but also his his art films as well. Um, so he, he comes from a place where you you trust the subject to tell the story, as opposed to to putting words into their mouths to tell the story. So you know I would I would say that the emotion of the performance is still very much from the actors, um, but we have always tried to create a space and a frame uh, within which the actors can work um, and, uh, you know, a composition that hopefully um, aids the performance and the emotion or in some way heightens it or highlights it. Is this a method that speaks to you? Where do you come from as a cinematographer? Well, my, my background was initially I was a news cameraman and then a documentary cameraman. So I've, you know, I have a very solid grounding in the real. And a lot of the times when you're in news or you're in documentaries, you're simply filming events, you're capturing events. You have no say or no control. So you are trying to find a frame that succinctly and clearly tells a story, which quite often you don't have any words to go with. So I think to me, it, it is a very natural thing to do. How do you apply that to a story where there's an element of control and a narrative where you know what's going to happen? Uh, how do you open yourself up to that element of freedom? Um, we spent a lot of time looking at different locations and looking for places that were appropriate, um, particularly Brandon's apartment, the office space where he works, um, the, the clubs that he goes to, trying to use those to define his character so that those things don't need to be said, they can be seen. And also finding spaces within which, you know, um, Michael Fassbender is an actor 
um, could do the things that were relevant to the story for that location. Um, and once you're in that space, then you know you you, you trust the actors. Um, you trust Steve, the director. You trust um, Judy Becker, the designer, um, and you just look for look for the the, the frames um, and look for the places within that, that 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 you know tell the story best. And these locations themselves uh, are particularly Spartan, uh, cool colors, and and very little in the way of decor. Very much conscious decisions. Um, in terms of every single item that is placed, placed within the frame. Um, and, you know, a lot of the time, Steve would just be taking things away to simplify the compositions, to simplify the frames, to simplify the story visually, um, so that, the, you know, everything was there for a reason. And there was little or uh, no sort of visual waste, as it were, um, so, you know, it's part of the character of Brandon is this sort of hollow emptiness um, of the world that he lives in um, and the emotional world that he inhabits as well. Which is more difficult, to add something to the frame or to take something away? I, I don't think that, that there's really an answer to that um, because it, it depends so much on the context of the scene, of the shot, um, you know, some scenes you look at, some shots, specific shots you look at, and you feel there's something missing. Um, and, you know, you hope that there is something that you can add. Sometimes it's a very simple compositional element um, to balance the frame and has nothing at all to do with whatever the emotional intent um, might possibly be of the scene, but simply a desire to, to create a, a pleasing frame. Um, and I, I suspect it's actually easier to get rid of things than to add things. Because everything you add has to be there for a reason. Um, whereas when you look at something, you know when it's right and when it's wrong. Um, and when something should stay and something should go. There are these little flourishes of color, uh, like Sissy's red hat and the clubs where uh, we follow the characters into. When you pick a color that stands out so strongly from the rest of the palette, what are you trying to convey? I think, you know, color is, is such a powerful tool that you work with. Um, and it, it works in so many different ways. I mean, for example, Sissy, it, it's, it's sharing the, the huge difference between the two of them, that she is, you know, much more open and outgoing. She's equally damaged, um, but she is, you know, uh, almost a, a force of nature within the world. And, you know, the contrast to the closed down and sort of monotone branded was, was a very conscious decision, um, you know, made to, to, to really just highlight the difference between the two. You mentioned before that this minimalist design is an extension of the director's art films. What were the outside influences? When working with Steve, we, we tend to, to, to work through the script in, in great detail and look at a lot of references, um, not just other films, but also other, other works of art. Um, and, you know, those, those references then echo themselves through the film. Um, they're usually quite understated, um, but very much are there 
um, sort of coloring the way in which we think and see um, each individual scene. So, you know, the, it, everything comes from somewhere, um, but quite often the, where it comes from is a, a reference from some time ago, which has become a, a sort of a subconscious um, element that when we're, when we're on the set and discussing things, um, it, it just it makes sense to us um, that, that things should be in a certain way because of what we have discussed over time in, in relation to the look of the film. How would you characterize your relationship with McQueen? Well, me and Steve have worked together for, for over 10 years now. Um, I've done a lot of his installation work, um, and we've been to a lot of places and, and you know, done some very interesting things together. And we've become very good friends. Um, so, you know, we, we have developed a rapport um, over time. So a lot of the stuff is, is unsaid. You know, there, there's a nod, a look, um, yeah, an expression. Um, and we kind of, you know, we, we, we know what each other, I can't say I, I would ever know what Steve is thinking. Um, that would be rather presumptuous. Um, but we, we kind of know each other and how we work. Um, so it's a very easygoing relationship and you know, I'm very lucky it's sort of every cinematographer's dream is to work with a director who is not only talented but um, brave um, but also um, open and collaborative um, and that's very much what Steve McQueen is the, the one thing that I would like to add um, is that the relationship with the director is one thing and it's very 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 crucial um, but you also have the relationship with the actors um, and to work with you know talented people such as Michael Fassbender and Kerry Mulligan um, is, is is such a fantastic privilege, um, and that uh, you build up a trust um, you know with the actors, which is unique. And you know when it all works, it's a wonderful thing, and you can learn so much by watching what they do. I'm forever in awe. Of, of, of actors and their, their abilities and to, to have you know, the privilege of working with, with actors of that caliber is, is, is fantastic. But you also, apart from the actors, your relationship with the actors, you have so also your relationship with your crew because these films are, you know, they're, they're not made by just me and Steve and, and Michael. Um, you, you, you need all of that support of, of the crew behind you, particularly when you're working on, on, on subjects that are rather sensitive and working in a, in a style that is less than conventional. You need your crew to be 100% behind you. Um, and in this case, we had a fantastic crew, um, all New Yorkers, who, who did such a fantastic job and, you know, supported and, you know, embraced the whole idea of the film and they're the ones who make it happen and they're the ones that you know, at the end of the day never get mentioned so i'd just like to mention them had you worked with any of the new york crew before no i've never met any of them so when you're working with a new crew what are the, some of the steps that you might take to develop a mutual trust the you know trust is 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 something that's based upon um um, uh, respect primarily 
and you know it's being a cinematographer is a very strange thing because you have all of the technical um, demands and all the technical skills that you have to try and master over time Um, but then you also there are elements of leadership which if you can you know you don't if you can just try to understand the basic elements of them you you you've got to keep everyone happy keep everyone working um and to me the, the basis of that is respect you have to show them respect and to gain their trust by showing them you know that, that you lead from the front that you go out and you do it you know if you need to carry boxes you carry boxes um it's 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 hard to to define exactly what how you how you you know you gain someone's trust um but you know it's mainly just being honest with them and showing them the respect that they do is that process the same when you're working with the actors well they they have to feel comfortable in your presence they have to feel that that you are there um, and that your interests are their interests, and that your sole job is to make them look good. And that doesn't always mean to make them look beautiful, um, but to enhance and aid them in terms of their performance. And, you know, you, you can only do that over time. Um, and, you know, it's, it, it's, it, there's a certain amount of chemistry associated with that as well. There will be some people who you will get on with and others that you won't get on so well. But you have to treat them all equally um, and hope that they will, will treat you equally in return. You shot Hunger for McQueen as well. And we're, here we have two films that don't shy away from the frailties of the human body. Well, I, I, I'm not sure if they're about frailties, really. Hunger in particular, I think, is about strength, um, that strength of human will, um, that someone would believe in something so much that they would give them their own life for it um, and to do it in a way that is truly um, cruel and unpleasant and over a very long period of time. Um, you know, it's, I think there's a, a politics of the body associated with hunger um, that has more to do with strength and frailty. Um, whereas shame, you know, the, the, again, it, it's the body as a um, as a vehicle of emotion, um, but it doesn't have you know it's, it's not about um, the strength of will. Maybe it's about the weakness of will. Maybe it's the exact opposite of hunger. Um, but is and I would say in that regards, it is more about um, not less the frailty of the body than the frailty of the mind and the emotions. But the camera doesn't shy away from the power our bodies have over us and how frail they can be uh, when subjected to violence uh, in the case of hunger uh, or pleasure in the case of shame. The main thing they have in common is that the, um, it's a very frank look at um, individuals. I mean, you've Bobby Sands in Hunger and Brandon in Shame. The camera doesn't shy away at any point um, from what they are going through. Um, in fact, it, it tends to dwell on the, some of the more unpleasant aspects of, the, of both of their conditions. And I think that that's probably, for me, the main connection between the two is the way 
that you know everything is laid out. There's nothing hidden. Um, uh, we are simply presented with everything that is going on and left as a viewer to make up our own mind as to what we think about it. I think on neither film is there any moral judgment being made on the characters themselves. It's simply a, a really, um, hopefully balanced, honest look at about the events contained within you know, the period of time represented in the film. In interviews, McQueen and Fassbender have talked about trying to break down the barrier between the audience and a film. What is that barrier, and how do you break it down? Um, well, I, I can't say that I've consciously considered there to be a barrier. I mean, at the end of the day, films are entertainment. Um, I think they, they, they can be over-intellectualized. The, um, I think there are a lot of um, techniques and conventions within you know, modern filmmaking um, that are very false, that are there to engender a false excitement um, and, you know, because of where Steve comes from in terms of the art world, you know, the, the false emotion is anathema. You simply, a work of art cannot exist with a, with a falsity in it. So it's looking for a truth, um, you know, not a reality, because I don't think you, you know, the very presence of the camera and the fact that you have actors means that it's not real. Um, but you're looking for something that when people watch it, they are touched by it in a true way, emotionally. They're not being manipulated by the images. They're not being manipulated by the editing. That They're simply responding to what is happening to the actors on the screen at that point in time. How do you, as a cinematographer, convey these truths? The camera certainly isn't judging these characters. Um, it's simply showing what they do in that space at that time. Um, so, you know, I think that there, that is a much more real way. Also, if you look at the pace of the editing, you know, the, throughout most of the film, the scenes are, are left to develop within the frame itself. There is, is rarely, although there are occasions within this film, um, you know, the fast editing to engender excitement. Um, the, a lot of the action simply unfolds before the camera as opposed to, to being um, created by the camera and the, the editing techniques. There's a great example of that early on in the film where Michael Fassbender's character, Brandon, is watching his sister, Sissy, played by Carrie Mulligan, sing at a club. Most of the song is sung in a close-up, but a very tight single on her face, and it, it lingers uh, for a very long time. What's, what's going on in a shot like that? Well, what, what you're hoping is that the, the audience is, first of all, entranced by the performance and are given the opportunity to, to revel in what is going on. They're not being um, in any way manipulated by a series of different shots, um, that they are simply, over time, responding to what the character is actually doing. Um, I mean, there is a... Um, it, it seems like... Uh, 
a convention, a modern convention, that you have to cut. If, if you're not editing the whole time and cutting the scenes up into a series of different shots, um, then in some way the audience is going to lose interest. Um, and it's simply not true. When you have someone like Kerry Mulligan, who is a, it's a very beautiful singer, and you have a song like New York, New York, which everybody knows um, being sung in such a different way, um, then why not just let the song and the actress do the work? There's so much nakedness in this film, emotionally and physically. Which one is harder to capture? Um, the, the nudity within the film itself is totally relevant to the subject. Um, it's not there to, to, you know, to, to literally lay bare the characters. It's a result of the, you know, the emotional states and the physical states and the psychological states um, that they're all in. So it's simply a, a product of the story um, as opposed to, to you know, you, you can't make a film about a sex addict without there being sex and nudity. Um, and I think, you know, that there has to be a level of frankness um, to, to be honest to the audience. And you also, you, you do, to a certain extent, want to shock people into, into seeing what this life is. You know, it's... The, I guess it's almost a, Euro, a European sensibility as well, where, you know, nudity isn't... There's no big deal associated with it. Um, so, you know, as we were making the film, I think there were members of, because we had an American crew, um, to whom it might have all seemed completely over the top and, and mad. Um, but from a European point of view, um, there was nothing there that, that we haven't all seen before. And there was nothing there that was um, gratuitous. Um, uh, you know, within within the, the context of the story itself. So I don't think you know that, that simply by taking the clothing away from the actors that that um, had any great um, emotional or specific emotional um, impact. Um, it was simply a product of, of who they are and what they were doing. For example, in Hunger, all of those scenes based in the prison are based upon um, the true stories. You know, we spoke to hunger strikers, um, we spoke to prison um, warders, and, you know, they were stripped, searched on a regular basis looking for contraband, but also as a means of humiliation. Um, as Bobby Sands, as his body breaks down during the hunger strike, one of the effects of that is that you're, you become hypersensitive and you can't actually wear any clothing because it creates an immense amount of pain. Plus, you become covered in, in bed sores and other things. So, you know, your body is turning against itself. And that's why, you know, he's, he's not wearing any clothes. So everything that is done in that regard is actually based on a, a physical reality um, as opposed to any sort of um, attempt to create an emotional um, um, subtext um, by the use of, of, of you know of nudity. 
And then it's not just another naked body, it's something else. Well, exactly. There's always a, there's a context for it and uh, a reason or an explanation. And quite often those explanations aren't given. We never say it. There's no exposition in, in hunger that says, you know, as, as the body turns against itself and starts to break down, you know, the skin becomes so super sensitive that you can't wear any clothing. Um, you know, and that's, you know, again, part of going back to that whole thing where you don't have to tell everything, everyone everything through voiceover or through dialogue. Um, they don't need to know everything. They simply need to, you know, be able to respond to, to what they're seeing in front of them at that mo moment in time. So, yes, you can read much deeper meanings into all of it, but it always starts with um, a truth, a reality um, that, that you can then, you know, uh, and this for me is, is what makes a great film. It's, it's something that you can watch and it engages you. You have to think about it. You have to, um, to draw your own conclusions. You have to think. Not everything is laid out for you. Um, the, you have to work it out yourself. Um, for me, those, those are the films that, that you know, I, I remember and that, that, truly, um, to, that truly do engage me and, and excite me. I'm reminded of the two scenes in Shame that involve uh, Brandon and a woman from his office. In one scene, in the first scene, they meet for dinner and spend the whole evening making awkward small talk. And in the other, they spend the whole scene in a hotel room uh, and there's no dialogue at all. Uh, their relationship dynamic is very different in those two scenes. And even the characters seem more comfortable with showing than telling. Yeah, and I, I, I think that sort of is, uh, is, is part of the basis of Steve's storytelling. Um, we know exactly what's happening in the scene in the hotel room. We don't need to be told anything. We see it all, and it all resolves itself um, into the end effect, and we understand what has happened. Um, and, you know, that is the, the absolute opposite to the scene in the restaurant, which is um, quite expositional, but very obtusely expositional. The characters are, are laying themselves out in a way that you would on a first date. You know, they're, they're looking to understand each other and to see whether they fancy each other. Um, and you do that usually, you know, through chat. When you get to the sex bit, you know, there's not so much chat associated with it. For someone like Brandon, who's a sex addict, New York City is portrayed as a place of uh, unlimited possibilities. What is it about New York? Well, I think it, it, it's safe to say that, well, and Steve has said this many times himself, that he and Abby Morgan, the writer, um, had attempted to find sex addicts in England initially, um, but no one would really talk to them. And so we ended up in New York simply by the fact that, um, that they were able to find people in New York um, who were willing to talk to them. Because the film itself, again, is based on a series of interviews with, you know, with sex addicts. Um, so New York, I think it could be in any modern city, um, any Western, modern Western city, and some Eastern ones as well would come to that matter, um, where we are presented with all of these, um, these, these possibilities. Um, New York itself is a unique palette and sort of playground uh, where because I think that, that just the way Manhattan sits 
as this island of, of um, you know, such compressed energy and people and life um, that it, it works very well for the telling of the film. Um, and, you know, we, we consciously, there were elements of life in New York that we wanted to explore, um, uh, some of them more successful than other things. One of the things, we were looking at how people live their lives at, at altitude. You know, Brandon's house is on the, tw- his apartment, sorry, is on the 22nd floor. Um, his office is on the 17th floor. Um, sort of everywhere they go is up in the air. People live in the air, which is, you know, that is, it's such an odd, strange thing. And it was, and, you know, that was one of the, the, the factors that, that dictated the locations. We wanted to find these places where there was this, this view of this world around and just sort of try and play with this, this idea that these people aren't living on the ground. They're, they're sort of ex- suspended above the ground for so much of their lives. And we also just wanted to show New York as New Yorkers see it as opposed to the New York that we see in every film. And, uh, you know, Judy Becker was fantastic um, at um, producing, you know, these, these images of just normal New York that we were able to then work, work around. And with the location manager, David Velasco, you know, we spent hours just driving around and looking at places and, you know, talking to people, seeing what, what you know, seeing what a Manhattanite sees as opposed to, you know, what all the films in the past have seen of New York. So, you know, that it was a, it's not that we were trying to make New York a character, but we, we did not want to deny where the film was and wanted to try and, and highlight and use those unique elements of New York as best we could to help illustrate the character of Brandon. What does normal New York look like? Well, one thing that, that, that we recognize very quickly is that actually the color palette of New York is very, very dull. Um, you get browns and grays in the buildings with the only bits of color being the awnings out front, which are mostly reds and greens, and the yellow taxis really stand out. But most everything else is really rather drab. Um, and... You know, that was one thing that we wanted to show on the streets. Also, the, when you get into the underground system there, the, it, it's a very cold place. And sort of, you know, trying to, to, to incorporate those colors, that sort of cold green of the underground, and then the brown drabness of the, of the, um, of the streets themselves. Um, then punctuated by you know the, the heavy gloss of the bars and the and the, the pubs and the clubs, that's where the color is. The color tends to be inside instead of outside. So it was working with all those ideas and working with you know with Judy the designer to to create a palette that we thought was um, was a true palette um, for New York. Was there a particular style you wanted to achieve with the lenses and aspect ratio that you used? You know, the one shot that we said we would never do would be looking up the canyons of New York City. That's just such a cliche. And, you know, we consciously chose the 2-4-0 aspect ratio 
which isn't vertical. It's a horizontal ratio. So your verticals disappear out of the top of the frame because it, compositionally uh, it gave us so much more to work with, particularly within the, the, the geographic structure of Brandon's apartment, but also in an emotional way. You can use that wide frame by sticking people one side or the other or in the middle apart from each other or close to each other. You can use the frame in so many different ways um, to, to help the, the emotional elements of the story and the characters themselves within their relationship to each other and their relationship to the space which they're in. So and in terms of, of focal lengths, there, there were no conscious decisions in that regard. So, you, know, you, ch- you choose the lens um, that works best for the shot. So we never tried to fit anything into a lens size, but simply responded to the actual location and the um, and the, the 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 movements of the actors within that location with what we felt was the appropriate lens size. There are a lot of frames within frames. Uh, was that a conscious design decision? No, but it's always something that that is is usually quite pleasing um, compositionally. Um, we, we never said, we never looked for frames within frames, but if we saw a frame within a frame, uh, then we would use it. Um, I, can't, I can't say that that was something that we, we specifically set out to do, um, but I, I, I find myself that, that it's usually a, a, a really, a, like I say, compositionally, um, a nice thing to use to, you know, to highlight elements um, within the frame itself. So the eye is drawn to that frame within the frame and you sort of discount other elements in the frame. So it's a, I think it's, it's more of a technique than, um, than, than a conscious design decision. Considering the impact Steve McQueen's films have had on audiences, I can imagine it's difficult to not be impacted by the process of filming them. Well, I, I think I can say with all honesty that I would not be the cinematographer I am without my collaboration with Steve, um, specifically in his artwork. Um, the to begin with, you know, you usually when you set out on a project, it's you know there's there's a story, there's a linear element to it. It's sequential. There are things that you can hold on to. There are ideas. Um, when you start off to create a work of art, the, those ideas are simply ideas. There is no, there's, there is no narrative. There's no linear element. There's no sequential element to it. And the first time I worked with him, we were you know, almost two miles underground in a gold mine in South Africa, one of the most hostile environments you could possibly imagine. And we had spoken about the, 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 you know, the, the film for some time. But when we finally got down to the bottom of this, of this gold mine, I'm slightly claustrophobic as well. I wasn't very comfortable. Um, you know, I said, well, what do we do now? And he said, I don't know. There's something here. We just have to find it. Um, and, you know, coming from a, that background where you always had a story or something, initially there was about five minutes there where I thought, what am I doing here? This man's insane. Why are we here? And then I suddenly realized that, you know, actually – this, this, there's a freedom to this. And that freedom turned into a joy because instead of being bound by a narrative or by a story, um, it was simply there exploring 
what was visually possible within that space. And, you know, by the end of the first day, I simply didn't want to leave because it was just so exhilarating to do anything and for everything to be possible. And I think that, you know, that from that single experience, everything else that I do as a cinematographer now comes. That was Sean Bobbitt, BSC, talking about his work on the Steve McQueen film, Shame. This has been the American Cinematographer Podcast. Thanks for listening. You can find more podcasts, blogs, and exclusive ASC content by logging onto theasc.com. This podcast has been brought to you by the American Society of Cinematographers, a nonprofit organization dedicated to promoting the art and craft of cinematography.